let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Avast, for supporting the Bureau. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now back to the podcast. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. You haven't built a mausoleum. You've built an active, engaging tribute and an education facility. It was not just an Oklahoma story. It was a national story. Timothy McVeigh, this, uh, who pulled off this horrific event. Minute by minute, moment by moment, face by face, name by name. A concerted effort to teach the past so that it's not repeated. What did we miss that allowed this to happen? We just seem unable to view ourselves as a threat. Trying to teach the senselessness of, of violence. The impact of social media and radical people to violent action. Just a battle we're going to have to fight. Domestic terrorism has become a front and center issue in America since the violent events at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. But domestic terrorism isn't new. It's just that ideologies that lead to it are becoming mainstream. It's that kind of mainstreaming that can happen when we fail to learn the lessons of our past, and we forget how deadly extremism can become. Our guest today is dedicated to ensuring we don't fail and we don't forget. Carrie Watkins is the executive director of the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum. Now nearly 27 years after the deadly attack on the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, we'll talk to Carrie about her mission and her vision. Carrie, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Frank, for having me. Of course, of course. Look, I've wanted to have you on um, really since I started the podcast because I'm someone who's paid a couple of visits uh, to the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum, and I encourage every single one of our listeners to do it. If you're ever in Oklahoma City, or for that matter, in Oklahoma, make a plan to stop and visit the memorial and museum. In fact, if you don't have time to go through the whole museum and can do nothing more, visit the outdoor symbolic memorial. It's open 24-7. It will be one of the most emotional moments you'll have and the most poignant reminder of how violence can overtake us. Carrie, tell us your journey um, to having become associated with the memorial and museum. Where what your background is and, and when this all started for you. Yeah, you know, I, on April 19th, I was um, finishing my MBA and I had worked at a national company that was headquartered here, Sonic Drive-Ins, and had left to go finish my MBA and was deeply touched by April 19th. I remember exactly where I was, walking out the door, watched my garden doors go in and out about six miles north of downtown 
and thought it was a gas you know explosion and went back in turned my television on and watched the unfolding of the story over the next 15 20 minutes it was a day that changed our city forever not because of just what happened and the the senselessness of it but also because i think for Oklahoma city we we identified who we were that day and we knew we were good we knew we did the right things and we took care of our neighbors but that day the world stopped and watched how we took care of each other and that was a defining moment i think for Oklahoma city a city that you know is just over 100 years old and it was just a fairly young city but we were in a process of going through rebuilding our city and Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols and their ideology of trying to take a stand against the government changed this city that day and frankly changed me. So fast forward a few months and I was doing a business transaction with the local attorney and he recommended that maybe I would talk to one of his partners who had been named the mayor by the mayor um, to chair the memorial process and um, didn't know much about it. Certainly was watching Oklahoma City try to put itself back together. And Bob Johnson had been selected by the mayor and the governor to chair this process. And so I had breakfast with Bob the next day and uh, really didn't have any plans to do this, but uh, that's how the journey started. And it's been, you know, a 25 plus year journey now for me. It's something I've, uh, come to know my backgrounds in journalism and history. And so I knew the media portion of this and how to handle media. And, and that was at the time really critical in communications and trying to convey what we wanted to do, which was we didn't know what the memorial would look like, but we knew we wanted to put something there because of so many designs coming in almost immediately. But at the same time, we had to you know weigh the properties that were there. Uh, were you building a memorial to the attack or to the victims? I mean, there was a lot of work to be done, and it was done by a 350-member task force, which was a remarkable process. If you haven't ever worked with 350 people at a time, Frank, I recommend you do it once or twice. But uh, it really was a life-changing experience for me, and it was a collective leadership that really set a tone for how this city would do things in the future. Well, we're glad you're in that position. And, you know, I, we'd be remiss, Carrie, to to not realize that many of our listeners on this podcast were not even born uh, when this event happened. And so let's take a moment and have you walk through exactly what was the Oklahoma City federal bombing, who did it, you know, and I'll, I'm sure I'll have some questions. I, 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 I'll never forget where I was. You know, we have these seminal events in our histories where we know where we were um, I was on my way to work uh, at FBI Palo Alto Resident Agency in California. It's part of the San Francisco Division. I was literally brand new. I was still living in temporary housing, and I had the car radio on. I heard of this explosion at the federal building, and of course, the first thing that went through my mind was that something that was this massive was likely an act of terrorism. Many in the office, as soon as I walked in, said, no, boss, this looks like international terrorism. But lo and behold, it wasn't. Tell us what tell us what happened. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, a, you know, it was a very well planned out event, but quiet. And think about it, the Internet wasn't what it is today. So not everybody had a laptop or a computer or certainly didn't have an iPhone at their disposal. So in April of 1995, it was the second anniversary of Waco. Timothy McVeigh and his army buddy, Terry Nichols, uh, had planned this fairly extravagant bomb, a 4,000-pound bomb in the back of a rider truck. They had built it 
uh, at a lake in Kansas the weekend before. But it had been a process, I mean, where they had, you know, had a robbery, gotten money, sold some things to try to buy the fertilizer. And this is all proven in trials. This is not stuff I'm just hearsay. It's it's stuff that was proven in trials. But it was a long process of trying to make a stand, I think, against the government because of what they perceived the government had done wrong in Ruby Ridge and Waco. McVeigh has never really, he never really talked much, talked to some journalists and talked to his attorney. But they, they loaded up in big barrels, fertilizer barrels, 4,000 pounds of explosive material. He detonated the bomb at 9.02. He ran across the street to his getaway car, which is parked in the alley behind the YMCA, which has now been torn down and rebuilt in a different place. But it, it was just a few hundred yards to his car. The key was found to the rider truck near where his car was parked. Um, he heads north up I-35 and is pulled over by a Oklahoma Highway Patrol trooper, Charlie Hanger, who was just doing his job that day, wanted to come to Oklahoma City, heard all the activity on the radio of the explosion, and he wanted to come, and he was told to stay and patrol the, the highway. Back to the actual bomb that was the, 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 uh, parked the truck right in front of the Alfred P. Murray Federal Building, which was a nine-story downtown office building. It looked like most federal buildings you see across the country. The second floor, though, happened to be a daycare, which was kind of a, a new thing for the government to, to provide daycare for, I mean, to have that accessible to their employees and it was a big perk for employees. They could go down at their breaks and lunch hour and see their kids. It was a great, it was a great perk until April 19th. And so everyone would see the kids. The playground was on the plaza and there was a great cohesive relationship with these federal employees and the daycare and America's Kids Daycare. Fifteen of those kids would die in the daycare, and four other kids were in other parts of the building with either their parents or grandparents partaking in government services. People were not going to war that day. They went to work. And so when McVeigh and his extreme ideology decided that he would try to take a stand against the government and bring down the government, what he saw was the complete opposite. And it was a country that united like never before. People came together and... We we rallied to say we we can do this and we won't we won't tolerate this and it's senseless. Meantime, 168 families you know were impacted. Yeah, I I wanna I wanna you know you mentioned uniting like never before and and you know we saw the country rally of course on September 11th, uh, 2001 with an, an international terrorism attack and yet I have to wonder whether we can unite once again to fight a common threat. And this is why it's so important. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, Carrie, that the work you do get as much exposure as possible, because this notion of rallying around a threat, coming together in a time of tragedy, uh, speaking out against evil, may be escaping us now. And I I just wanted to, to just interject there as you say that. And Keep keep going with the story now. Post uh, well, active explosion recovery and right. and and post explosion. One hundred sixty eight people were killed in the bombing. Uh, for the most part, the last victim was pulled out that evening around ten. There were two known that they couldn't uh, get to where the building had collapsed, and then once the building came all the way down the. Uh, recovery process, then they found the third body of a person they didn't know was in the building. Some of those people were killed in the building across the street or on the street. One rescue worker who had come down just to be a good 
public servant came down and worked and was hit in the head and later died. So 168 total people were killed. About 600 people were survivors from either in the building or the perimeter of the building and one of the buildings around it. And um, 19 of those, as I said, were children. And so the children in a federal building got the attention really of the world. Um, this, I think, helped unite people to like, you know, we're not, you can't kill innocent children. Frankly, everyone in this attack was innocent. They went to work, as I said. They didn't go to war. They didn't go wearing camouflage. They weren't ready to fight back. They had. They were just doing their jobs. And so when you sit back and see, many people thought in the first few hours, Frank, you'll remember this, that it was an international attack. And they were looking for people and, you know, what they called brown people or other people, international people. They stopped somebody at the Heathrow Airport trying to think that was one of the people and and when I interviewed all the national medias for exhibits in the museum they talked about that was one of the biggest lessons they learned was we can't make these assumptions and when we not knowing that the guy had been stopped and arrested you know an hour and 15 minutes north of here and taken to jail because he was carrying a Glock and a, and a knife and today if you were stopped in Oklahoma with a gun you wouldn't be arrested but in 1995 it was illegal so he went to jail he had no other warrants. There was nothing. He was a clean-cut American soldier, I mean, a vet. And so he went to jail, should have stayed one night, ended up staying two because of a issue in, at the courthouse and time for the judge. And at that point, ATF had tracked him down to the Noble County Courthouse in Perry, Oklahoma. And uh, the sheriff received a call from the ATF agent and said, do you happen to have a guy named Timothy James McVeigh in your custody? And... The sheriff wasn't sure, found out absolutely they do. But it, this was a story of ordinary people doing their jobs really extraordinarily well. And from the sheriff to his jailer, uh, Marsha Moritz, who t- you know took McVeigh's clothes and sealed them in a bag and gave him the jumpsuit, that those clothes would then be traced back to the same chemical, the same fertilizer that was found at the site. I mean, work was done very well. It was the best police work, I think, from FBI, state police, city police, county. All I mean, it was a great joint effort. And it wasn't perfect, but it was a great effort. And thousands and thousands of items and hundreds and hundreds of leads you know, had to be taken. They rebuilt the rider truck from parts. They went all over the country. I think 20-some states where different pieces of evidence were or, or pieces of the story were. It, it was not just an Oklahoma story. It was a national story. And then it became international because this decorated American soldier had turned on his own country. And I think when you look at that, and then you look at January 6th, you know, it is, it's raw. I mean, it's it's cumbersome to think that we could be back at that same point again. And that Yeah, you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned just about everybody thinking uh, this was international. And, you know, people who look different must have done this to us. But it was us. And... Again, you know, the past is prologue, as it says, over the entrance to the National Archives in Washington. And we've got to, we, see, we just seem unable to view ourselves as a threat. And I think, I think we're coming to that realization. But, oh, my goodness gracious, the lessons that, that are available at your museum um, are incredible. But now let's, let's finish the capture here because McVeigh ultimately gets stopped by a Texas state trooper. Do I have No, no, right? no. The Oklahoma nope. trooper, Charlie Hanger. Charlie Hanger. Yeah. yeah. In, in okay. Perry, Oklahoma. And so he's in, he's taken to the Noble County courthouse because he's carrying a gun. And, and as I said, he wouldn't be today, if he were stopped, it wouldn't be illegal, but 
1995, he got to go to jail for a little bit for that. Anyway, as as they made the discovery where he was, then the FBI agents and ATF, all the federal agents, descended upon the Noble County Courthouse just about an hour and 15 minutes north of Oklahoma City on that Friday after the Wednesday bombing and brought him back to Tinker Air Force Base where the number two or three person in the Justice Department, a guy by the name of Merrick Garland, who is a familiar name now, would be leading the charges on behalf of the, of the Justice Department. And Merrick handled that. And it, it's a remarkable story because because it was an Air Force base, media wasn't you know readily available or allowed on the base. And Judge Garland, or Attorney General now, postponed the, the hearing a little bit until they could get media on the base to observe this arraignment because it would be so important for the nation to see how this was being handled. And I think as you go forward, and we've interviewed all the lawyers of both the prosecution and the defense, and, you know, because the country had come off this pretty horrific O.J. Simpson trial of, of how that was handled, the justice members, both prosecution and defense, were both all concerned about making sure this was done right. And the world was watching. And it, as I say, as I go back, it was not a perfect process, but it was really, really well done. And it was touched by so many hands. It's remarkable that 27 years later, it remains the largest domestic attack, and we hope that there is nothing ever worse than this. But that's going to depend on us and how we react and how we band together and, as you said, see ourselves as a threat and move past that and decide, you know, we we can't take these kinds of things out on innocent people. So a couple of, a couple of things we you've just said that we've we've got to stop and talk about one of them is Merrick Garland and uh, you know right now the media and and certainly my social media accounts are filled with Americans just talking about their level of frustration with the US Department of Justice on getting all over January 6th and the organizers and planners is Merrick Garland up to the task or not you know who is this guy that's now attorney general of the United States at this time of horrible polarization and a threat to our democracy. And lo and behold, you've reminded us that this guy named Merrick Garland was involved in the prosecution of the, of the largest domestic terror attack in the United States. And I, I want to remind our listeners of that. And also, you know, there's an interesting, for the legal nerds out there, there's a federal prosecution element to this case, and there's a state prosecution element to this case. Tell us why, because I, a lot of our listeners know that I get up on my soapbox and preach the fact that we still don't have, 20, no, almost 27 years after Oklahoma City, we still don't have a domestic terrorism law. So a lot of people may go, wait a minute, are you saying that there was a federal prosecution in Oklahoma City? And, and if so, Carrie, what, why? What, what was that about? Yeah, I mean, it, was a, it was an attack on the federal government and the federal building. But eight federal law enforcement officers were killed and those were the only ones that could be tried for in the federal trial, which is as crazy as it comes, in my opinion. And so then both the terrorists were tried on the federal level. McVeigh was found guilty and got the death sentence. Nichols was found guilty and got life. And then the local district attorney brought the state trial to Oklahoma to try for the 160 lives that were not that were killed but were not counted in the federal trial. The state trial was only for the 160. Yeah, I, I, again, I see it as part of my mission in life to remind Americans that this thing called domestic terrorism, which we actually define in, in the federal law, we don't 
have any law against. We have a definition, but we don't have a law against it. That's why in the January 6th prosecutions, we see people being charged with things like trespass, assault on an officer, theft of Nancy Pelosi's laptop, damage to property, all well and good, but none of that reflecting the gravity of the threat that day and an attempt to stop the peaceful transfer of power uh, in a presidential election. So back uh, to April 19th, 1995, again, only because federal agents happened to work in that federal building, only because this attack was on a federal building, was there a federal prosecution of any kind, and it still wasn't for domestic terrorism. And now, all these years later, we still have not awakened to the need for a domestic terrorism law. So there's my there's my preaching. Correct. Yep. There we are. So we have a, we talk about that in the museum as you leave. You know, why are we in this position 27 years later? What can we do? How do we keep this from happening? And what will it take to get a domestic terrorism law? And I don't want to get political because I'm apolitical in this job, but it is a position that you know, as Americans, we have to take a strong stance against. And and I, I think it's just a battle we're going to have to fight. Yeah, it's a it's a good segue at this point to start talking about you know the museum and the memorial and how you view your mission. How many people come through this wonderful memorial every year, and the real opportunity you have to educate? Tell us about what it's like to be there. For for many of our listeners, they've never visited. Hey, I've devoted my career to security and safety, so let me share our new sponsor with you, Avast. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity, and they've been taking care of business for over 30 years. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, regardless of who or where you are or how you connect. You can enjoy being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, gives you control of your online safety and privacy with a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Their antivirus is award-winning. It stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. Data breach monitoring lets you know if your online accounts are compromised or your passwords exposed. There's a battle going on inside your devices. Let Avast fight that battle for you. Secure your documents and photos with ransomware protection that stops bad guys from modifying or encrypting your own data. Every month, Avast prevents over one and a half billion attacks. So stop worrying and start fighting with Avast. Learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Now back to our guest. Well, the memorial is this gorgeous, powerful three and a half acre site that has 168 empty chairs that represent those that were killed. And on each chair is a name inscribed in their glass base with the bronze back. And they age just like a person is aging. They change by the day and with weather. And and on one end of the memorial is the 901 gate, representing the moment before the bombing, the innocence. And the moment after is the 903 gate, representing the moment that healing began. And in between those two five-story bronze gates, which have a mission statement etched on the, on the outside, it says, we come here to remember those who were killed, those who survived, and those changed forever. May all who leave here know the impact of violence. May this memorial offer comfort, strength, peace, hope, and serenity. So that that's our goal for outside. Um, there's a 380-foot reflecting pool, which was, took the place of the street where the rider truck pulled in. And there's terrace benches that, and then 
at the highest point of the memorial is a survivor tree, a 100-year-old-plus American elm that stands guard over the site. And that tree that morning was a parking lot. In, I mean, it kind of provided shade in a parking lot. Burned, but didn't break, much like the people in the spirit here. And the spirit of Americans is that we were hurt and damaged, but we figured out how to rally back. And then the trees closest to that survivor tree are Oklahoma redbuds that represent the volunteers who came the quickest. And then goes out to a large uh, orchard of trees, of fruit and flower-bearing trees that represent the first responders who came from near and far. And then there's a children's area that opens right into the entrance of the museum. And the museum is really meant to tell the guts of the story, while the outdoors is meant to be symbolic and cathartic and to cause you to think. The indoor really lays it out minute by minute, moment by moment, face by face, name by name. It tells you the story. And it you see pieces of evidence. You see the timeline. You see how it happens. You hear the sound of the bomb, which is recorded across the street in a public hearing going on. And you you walk through two floors of a process of understanding how horrific this was and at the same time how resilient the people were. And you end in a glass overlook, overlooking the symbolic memorial grounds and a downtown that is changing forever. Kind of a, we call it an exhibit that keeps changing. I mean, our, our lives keep changing, they keep moving forward, but but we have to take the lessons we learned in that museum and apply them to our own lives by making sure we're good listeners and we're practicing civility and that we're working together and that we're collaborating on things that even when you and I don't agree, we figure out how to meet in the middle. And those are lessons. Those are real life lessons that we that, that happened. I mean, it wasn't common for federal and local and county and state agencies to have to work together hand in hand for days on end. I mean, they had they kind of all had their own territory, but in this process, they all work together. I mean, there are so many great lessons that were learned through the horrificness of this act and then how people responded to it. And many of those were family members who lost loved ones and how they learned to forgive or how they learned to move on. I mean, there's life lessons, there's moral lessons, there's people lessons of how we can work together, humility and understanding, you know, what our role is and understanding uh, working together. And, and just sometimes you have to you know, bite your tongue and move forward. But but, but there's nowhere on this site that says what happened is ever okay. And we don't glamorize in any way the perpetrators, mm. but we tell their story and you see their faces so that you understand they were average Americans just out living amongst us. They weren't yep. monsters. I mean, they were monsters, but they didn't look like monsters. Right. I, I have to tell you the, again, I, this is going to sound like a, an ad for the, uh, for the museum, but I have to tell you, it, it is. As far as I'm concerned, this is more needed than ever based on what we're facing right now. And, you know, you mentioned the, you know, the challenge to not glamorize the perpetrators, but rather to pay tribute to the victims. And there is a room that I recall uh, being in in the museum that it has a photo of each and every one of the victims and then a little memento that I think you worked with their family members on that kind of is a is just a memory of them. Tell tell me about that that room. Yeah, the Gallery of Honor, it's it's as you go through the you've experienced the horrificness of the event, you've learned a little bit of the police work and the incredible work that was done. You see the Oklahoma standard shining by people coming to help. You see the prayer service that Billy Graham led. You see the arrest. I mean, there's all this incredible part of the story coming together. And you come down the elevator and you walk into the Gallery of Honor and you see these 168 faces staring at you of these innocent people who were taken that day. And in each of the boxes, 
the acrylic boxes are items their families chose that represent their loved ones. And in those items, they represent symbols of faith, their Secret Service badge, or their sunglasses. And one's a credit card. She was the first one in her family to get credit. I mean, there are these great moments of honoring their loved ones. And there's interactives right outside the room where you can watch home movies of these people or understand their story by their loved ones or their coworkers or know why their families chose that artifact. And it becomes very real. You don't have to lose someone to an act of terrorism to relate to these pictures. You could have lost someone in a car wreck, a divorce, a sickness. And you can realize there's a quote that a mother says, I had to teach my boys we were a family even though their dad was gone. That's a great reminder that, you know, people had to rebuild their lives and move forward. Yeah, it puts that that gallery puts a human face, a very human face, literally on the impact of violent ideology. Um, And and the other thing that strikes me about the museum is it's just really high tech and interactive. This is not like going to a museum and and looking at pictures on a wall. There's a place there where classes of students come in and can actually sift through the rubble in a in a in a virtual way or and sometimes literally uh and and do forensic work as law enforcement really did back then it, it tell us about that and tell us about the classes that you had you know of kids that come through there well i mean we we realized early on that someday we would teach the story to a group of people who were not born. That seemed to come really quick, Frank. It came very quickly to us. But we've redone the museum twice, one significantly. Uh, that was about five years ago now. And we added, uh, our, our goal is to teach people 8 to 80. I mean, we, we know that's our audience. And so if you're coming through with your parents and your kids, you know, your kids are going to go touch the screen. And in those screens are every single piece of evidence that were in the trials, oral histories, different objects from our archives, personal stories, great videos that are teaching. I might watch a video. My generation might watch the video to learn the story. My mom and dad are probably going to read the museum panels and look at the artifacts. And so we all learn the same story, but through different ways. I think one of the things we had to really work on is meeting our audience where they were and being willing to teach this story to them, fact-based, the truth, as it was tried in the courts, and not once, twice, but three times in the courts, and to make sure that this information was passed along in what way they would be willing to consume it. And so today, fast forward to 2021, 2022, we're teaching students now who not only didn't know it, half of our city wasn't alive or didn't live here in Oklahoma City. And 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 so 55% of Oklahoma City residents didn't live here in 1995 or were not born. So we're teaching this story now to a new generation, a new audience, and trying to teach the senselessness of, of violence, and especially as a means of affecting government change. And we have to do that. And then I think one of the other lines in our mission statement that's so powerful, it talks about this place should teach the brutality of evil and the tenderness of the response. Well, that is a goal that we work really hard on here, is making sure we don't candy coat the story. I mean, you have kids now, you know, in war games, killing more people than died here. Virtually, they're killing more people than died here in reality, but making sure that they understand the difference between virtual warfare and real warfare and human warfare and, and making sure this generation understands that these were real lives. They were real moms, dads, aunts, uncles, coaches, teachers, preachers, that they had a role in the community. They were all doing things besides their job and their jobs were important. 
Why did an American think they had the right to come and take those lives? And what was it? What did we miss that allowed this to happen? And that's the lessons we really teach. And sometimes you teach that through a STEM lab, which are large interactive tables where they sift through the with the, sift through the artifacts and they take a tour through Terry Nichols' home and they understand how he had hid hidden so much under his floor and his you know in his basement and where all that stuff came from that the FBI agents from all over the country converged and found. I mean, there's so many great lessons and and there's a science lesson, there's a forensics lesson, there's a I mean, there's all these lessons that we learned in the aftermath. And then as you leave the museum, you're challenged with six different questions on spirituality and hope and citizen journalism and forgiveness. And like, you know, what would you do? What what would you do if this happened to you? And you're given several options. And it makes people think. I, I, I've watched kids and adults, but I've watched a lot of kids sit there and really struggle with, could they forgive someone that had killed their mom? I mean, could they find forgiveness? And that's a moral question that, you know, I can't dictate, you can't dictate, but and you and I might come to different resolutions on that. But there are still important things to process and to think about. And so we're putting it out there, not telling you how to think, but prodding you to think through these items and to think through these emotions and these kind of grounding virtues that we have that we live with every day. Yeah, you've seized that, that opportunity. You've got people who've come through this highly emotional, educational tour route and you grab them at the end with with the questions the seminal questions that need to be asked and i think it's that end of the tour where there is this teachable moment that you're seizing and i think that also represents you know the 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 future vision of where you can go with a dynamic ever-changing end of of the tour and asking questions that are most appropriate. I mean, you and I have talked about social media, the impact of social media and radicalizing people to violent action. What Give us some thoughts about what, what you're thinking, planning for the future of your work and the future of the museum. Well, we started two years ago now a, a, pro- a program called Better Conversations and uh, and also uh, the other thing it, that, that really focuses on that is getting people to come together either virtually or around a table and discussing hot topics, discussions. You can read those questions on our website at memorialmuseum.com. But just asking some basic questions and getting people to, to discuss and not argue, not fight, but to have generous listening and adventurous civility, as we call it, as, as you process these questions. And that's a program that has been very, very successful, especially through COVID of we've worked through some hard times of how, how can we come together? And we're going to do a special one on, on January 6th on the anniversary of the insurrection and really put some questions out there. We're going to do an, a version for the adults and a version for the students and let students lead the student section and really challenge students to think through, you know, not everything is black and white and there is some gray and how do we get there and how do we come to the middle? How do we meet in the middle? All of us. I mean, whatever we're debating, how do we meet in the middle? You saw recently in the life of Bob Dole, I think, I was thinking about how really much our our country has changed since he was in leadership and how we've, how we've gone far right or far left, but we've forgotten that people used to come together. You forgot that Senator Joe Biden and Senator Bob Dole used to work together and would work out differences. You hear your own congressional delegation talk about things, and there is very little discussion about working together it's all about they or us and and we hear that on the nightly news every night from wherever you're wherever you are you hear it in local news or national news it's it's we're divided and 
how do we become less political and more American and mm. and come together to work through these issues? There's nothing we know. There is nothing we can't do when we're given a challenge. But how do we do it in a way that is fair and honorable and allows us to be humble and to say that your opinion is as important to you as mine is to me and we need to meet in the middle? That's well, a very like, important lesson. I like that phrase, less political, more American. That's, uh, I need to write that one down. I, um, you know, we're reminded by this discussion that Timothy McVeigh, this, uh, who pulled off this horrific event, was a military veteran. And that, you know, when we look, look at what's happening now, we look at the percentage of defendants in the January 6th riot prosecution who are military veterans, some police officers, active duty or retired. How do you see that playing into your vision of this teachable moment that you have to seize regarding uh, the domestic terrorism of Oklahoma City? Do you have relationships with police academies, police departments? Are you thinking about military outreach? We do. The, uh, the police chief actually sits on our board and we have a pretty strong relationship with the Army, which had a recruiting office in the building and currently is across the street in the new federal building. I do think we have a responsibility to teach the new cadets and the new recruits and police and fire and FBI agents and all federal law enforcement and state and local law enforcement. As many as we can get through here, we do teach. And sometimes we use those who have come before them to teach those classes. And sometimes it's just a tour. Everyone does it a little differently. I do think we have to, as Americans, figure out how to honor our veterans in a way. They they have gone and defended us, and they've been taught to be combative and to be protectors of this great country in which we live. And then they come back to, they come back home, and they get a job, and they hopefully have a preference of, of hiring because of their service. But what are we doing as a country to go from one mentality of, war games and protection to a peacemaker. And how do we balance that? Because as we've seen in history over the last couple of years, and I know not every police officer is like this or every military person is like this, but how do we make the transition from military life to everyday life on the street? It's very different, as you know. You've done it, but it's very different. And we want to play a role. If that's a gap we can help fill, we want to do that. And we, we, we were talking to some folks about that. Is there a role we can play with the academies or with the military of, of how we can teach that, those lessons of coming together? And, and it's a different mentality. It's a different temperament of, of what you do in, in the battlefield and what you do on the city streets. And we saw the very, very best of police and first responders and federal state law enforcement after 1995. We saw the very best of it. And we want to teach those lessons to those who come behind us and make sure they have the chance to, uh, should they be called upon in such a horrific time, that they are ready for it and they're ready to do it in a way that's more peacemaker than it is a vigilante or, or, or protecting of a country. It's a very different role that they play. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, on a, on a national level, um, from the background I come from with FBI, there's a couple of field trips that every new FBI agent and intelligence analyst uh, takes as part of their, their training at the academy, which is they head up to D.C. 
and they get a training module at the National Holocaust Museum. And the purpose of that is to remind all of them of what can happen within an authoritarian regime that controls national law enforcement and the military. That's a, a stark reminder of how bad things can get. And then they take a separate trip to the Martin Luther King Memorial in D.C. and and get, you know, the FBI historian teaches them the abuses um, and excesses that happened during, say, the J. Edgar Hoover era and uh, the civil rights movement. There's a, a, a concerted effort to teach the past so that it's not repeated. And uh, again, I, I think in the area of radicalization, of what can happen on the fact that we can pose the greatest threat to ourselves, there is a tremendous opportunity for both the law enforcement and military with regard to teaching modules and visits to uh, to your memorial and museum. Well, and, and frankly, they, they benefit from so much. I mean, they can learn from lessons we learned here that there, there is no reason to repeat any mistake that was made. But there is certainly a reason to learn from how law enforcement work together and how different rescue teams work together. It, it wasn't easy for a fire chief to say to the FEMA director, yes, please bring in 11 other rescue teams. That wasn't admitting that our, team, our rescue workers weren't capable, but we were willing to bring in the expertise of those other teams. And so that working together uh, set a precedent, and it, it, it allowed us to recover every single body. It allowed us to, to give every single body back to their loved ones. I mean, there there are lessons that were learned in this story that were that were lessons in humility and lessons to, to put others before yourself and to say, you know, there's something I can learn here. There's something I can do here to make a difference. And mm. that's a life lesson. I mean, that didn't just happen on April 19th and days that followed. That's something we're still trying to put into place every single day around here and in, in our own lives and to teach that to students that, you know, humility is not something that's you know, you can't buy it and you've got to teach it and you've got to, people have to display it and, and model it for everybody else. And I think that's something we really want to do. I think when I think of Merrick Garland, I think of a humble person. I've seen him in the toughest of times here. And I think about what he's up against trying to bring justice to the January 6th insurrection. And yet he doesn't have a law to back him up. And so I think we go back to you know, what can we do? And then how do we do it? And how, you know, when we, when I go back to January 6th, I, I remember, and I told you this, I was watching in my office, and I watched an Oklahoma flag, someone carrying an Oklahoma flag, break through that barrier. And I've never been so sick, I'm just disgusted, the fact that one of my fellow Oklahomans could walk across that line knowing what we had been through in our own state. And, you know, I, I wondered, had that person ever been through here? I mean, did they really walk and do that at the Capitol after they've witnessed this story. And I still haven't gotten that res- resolution of that, but I will because I want to understand what we missed or how what what is it that we need to be teaching that, as you said, you know, try to disrupt a peaceful transfer of power. That's a constitutional right that our that we have as our country and we have responsibility as Americans to carry out that in our daily lives. And because we don't like something or don't agree with it does not mean you cannot peaceful protest. You absolutely can and should when necessary. Yeah. But it does not mean you should break the law and it should never be tolerated to break the law. And I think that is the, the point when you look back. If, if McVeigh really had beef with the government, why couldn't he process that in a different way? Why did he have to take innocent lives? 
And that's really what, even 27 years later, we're still searching for and making sure we teach that in a way that kids can understand it. Well, you're doing God's work as far as I'm concerned, and uh, I'm sure many of my listeners would agree that uh, it's sacred ground. Um, that, that footprint of the what used to be the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in, in Oklahoma City, um, and you, you haven't built a, a mausoleum. You've built an active, engaging tribute and an education facility, and I think you're you're using it well, and your vision moving forward is something we all could support. If our if our listeners wanted to support, uh, help, uh, I know you don't. T- tell me if I'm wrong, but you don't. You get no annual government operating funds. How how do you how do you function? Yeah, we're a national memorial, but we are operated by a, a private board and a private five hundred one c three, and we are um, great service. We have a great partnership with the Park Service. And if there was ever a place where the American people should work with the federal government, it should be this site. So we're proud to have a private foundation that owns and operates the site. And the Park Service is here at our invitation to do the interpretation of the outdoor site. So we're really proud of that. So the Park Service is paid through their annual appropriations, but the memorial and its maintenance and its operations are not funded through any sort of taxpayer dollars. And so you can go to memorialmuseum.com to learn more about us. I think, you know, Frank, just to wrap up, I mean, really it is on this sacred ground we work to find common ground. I mean, we feel like we can get, you bring anyone to us, there's a way we feel like we can find some common ground. There has to be something common amongst us. In that building, the 168 were killed, all very different people. They weren't all alike. There were different skin colors, different backgrounds, different religions, different families, different, you know, everything about them was different. But, those families can come together and help build this place and support and maintain this place. They still are active on committees and the board, and they, they play an invaluable role of making sure that the story is taught for generations. But most importantly, it is up to us and our mission to make sure the brutality of the event is told and the tenderness of the response, even 27 years later, and as we actively work to bring people together on this ground to find common ground. Yeah, outstanding. Uh, Carrie, give us one more time the website if people want to want to check that out. Memorialmuseum.com. We've been talking with Carrie Watkins, the executive director of the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum, and the power of history to, to the present, uh, helping us avoid and mitigate the threat from ourselves. If you ever get a chance, check out the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum. Uh, if you're an educator out there, incorporate the lessons of April 19th, 1995. It's a way to even perhaps avoid the politically sensitive topic these days of January 6th by simply teaching history, something that happened nearly 27 years ago. Thanks for joining us. And Carrie, I wish you the best and let us know if we can ever help. Thanks so much, Frank. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks for joining me for Domestic Dangers and the Vital Mission of the Oklahoma City Memorial and Museum. Join us next time as we take another deep dive beyond the Bureau with Frank Vigluzzi.
The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. 